I, I spend a large majority of my time in the military as a, a scout sniper and, and you know we call it a trained observer and you know we live behind glass uh-huh. um you know whether it's binos or spotting scope or, or your rifle scope and those people both times that i've been to kurdistan um have absolutely blown me away because uh especially ibex in the rocks like they are not easy to find and just at unreal distances in unreal conditions those guys would pick them out like it was nothing for our May Super Slam drawing, we gave away a fully guided desert mule deer hunt with San Jose Trophy Hunts in Mexico, and the winner was Troy Robecki from Wisconsin. Our second drawing was a $5,000 hunt credit won by Donald Mann of Colorado. Congratulations, guys, and thank you for your participation and support. Make sure and get in for June's Super Slam drawing, as we are giving away two, that's right, two separate mountain goat hunts, and you can't win it if you're not in it. Welcome back to another episode of the GSEO Podcast, where hunting is the number one conservation tool. Today's guest, Justin Schaefer, is a great friend of mine and an absolute assassin with a gun or a bow. On top of that, he's also a retired Army Ranger sniper and the Senior Director for Cuyu's Guide, Outfitter, Military, and First Responder Programs. Justin, how are we doing today, brother? Good morning, TJ. How are you doing, bud? Good, man. How's things in Anchorage? It's uh, good. It, uh, we're finally turning a corner here, and spring has shown up. It's a uh, little bit late, but it's here finally, so we'll take it. Yeah, heck yeah, man. The sun's starting to shine over there then, huh? Yep, yeah. We're finally, uh, we broke 50s last week, and uh, now we're creeping up on 60s, and um, all the south-facing slopes are starting to burn off, and yeah, it's starting to look like spring finally. Cool, man. That's, uh, that's good to hear. Um, those late winters, I know, are heck on the sheep, but... Um, and everything else. I mean, like we were just talking about before we got on, like the the winters, just whatever survives is going to do good, right? Yeah, yeah. With all the moisture content, it's going to be great for them. But man, it was it was hard. A lot of snow for a long time, and yeah, going to be rough. Well, cool, man. Well, you've been on absolute terror the last few years, dude. We've known each other for quite a few years now, and and I've watched you know the, the hunts that you've done, and with the the. Um, amount that you do and the type of hunts you do it is awesome and we're going to get into some of that um here in this podcast but before we do man like you know so many people in our hunting community i mean we do shows together and i see how many people come up to you and, and talk to you and stuff but for those people that don't know you man just just give us a little background on yourself and you know how you became so passionate about hunting yeah i guess um so i mean for as long as i can remember um you know i've always hunted and fished and been um, in the outdoors. I didn't grow up in an outdoor family like my parents. Um, they didn't hunt, but uh, they had friends and, and family members that were big hunters and luckily took me under their wing. And, um, you know, it just uh, caught on like fire. You know, it just w- one of those things that it, it, it's all I think about. It's all I do. It's, it's my passion, my drive, my desire. You know, when I'm not hunting, I'm thinking about the next hunt and thinking about you know the the next goal and next species and next country and you know it's just it's it's what i live for and and you know it's what i surround myself in uh day in and day out you know i'm lucky to work in the industry and uh, have a job that affords me lots of opportunities to um you know work with different outfitters and different groups and and just open up the doors to be able to do um more hunting and 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 being able to to get out there and, and do what i love yeah that's cool man like talk a little bit about like so when you retired from the army how did you know people in the industry then or how did that transition like how did you 
how did you, how were you able to get into the industry? Yeah, so I've been um, in the hunting industry one way or another for 20 to 25 years, um, starting out through uh, pro staffs in the shooting community, um, you know, whether it was uh, uh, rifle competitions or archery competitions, um, you know, and then writing for outdoor companies, um, worked for a couple of booking agents. So, you know, just over the years, um, any chance that I had to be a part of an organization, whether it was a pro staff or um you know a content provider or what whatever on that realm um that's how i got my foot in the door and then you know you just develop relationships um and network you know mm-hmm. and, and one door opens up another door and you just you keep good relationships and and you know build on those and and the opportunities just you know they grow and, and they build and it's gotten me to to where i'm at today where uh, four and a half years ago, I retired from the army to take a job um, at Kuyu that opened up, and you know it was the best thing that I've ever done. It was it was scary leaving, um, you know that that foundation that I had been in for the last twenty five years with that, um, you know security net with a paycheck and a job to to retire, jump ship, and and start a new uh, career and a new new life in another industry. But it's it's been phenomenal and one of the best moves that I've ever made and, you know, haven't looked back. Yeah. No, and you're, you're really great at what you do, man. Like I've seen it over the last few years and the way you've developed that program has, has been awesome, man. And, and how you, you know, how you talk to people and, and how you, your knowledge of just the gear and the hunts that you've done, like I can see why you excelled pretty fast in, in the outdoor industry. Like you, I've never heard anything bad about you, which, you know, I had a podcast with another guy and for for someone to say that, you know, it's pretty, pretty rare because you, you seems like you always hear something bad about somebody or there's, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. And I appreciate that. And yeah, on the hunting and gear side of it, it's easy to talk about something that you love and that you're passionate about. And then, you know, I've just had a, a super, um, lucky life with, with being surrounded with, with great friends, great, great people like you guys. And, you know, it's easy. You just treat people how you want to be treated. So, you know, when somebody asks a question, you know, you do do what you can to help them and, and answer that. And just, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a hard philosophy, not a hard concept to just treat people how you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you haven't let a, like, a lot of your success like go to your head. You know what I mean? Like some people like big, big egos and you're, you're still a really humble guy. Like, and it's just funny because you're, you're like the selfie master. We always talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone wants to take a, sh- a selfie with Schaefer when you're at the show. So people, if you walk by the, the booth, like make sure you get a, a picture with Justin Schaefer. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to make it fun. Seems light. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, that's cool, man. So, um, who was the biggest, I know you just said you didn't, you didn't grow up in a hunting family, but who influenced you the most, like to get into hunting? Was it a friend? Was it, yeah. a, you know, who, who was it? Yeah, there were, were two people that probably had the greatest impact on me um, in my early teens. And that was uh, one of my dad's best friends, Charlie Harris, um, big time hunter. And uh, he took me under his wing. And then my grandfather's best friend, Bob Hodges, um, another big time hunter who, um, you know, went out of his way, uh, taught me everything I know about archery, um, everything I know about long distance shooting. Um, and just th- those two guys took a wet behind the ears punk kid um, that had no foundation and no basis for the outdoors. And, and they were what started everything for me um, as far as mentors and mm-hmm. people getting me into the field. So I owe 
everything to those two gentlemen um, that got me started. Um, how old were you when and what did you first start hunting? What did they take you out yeah, to hunt? Early teens, you know, probably somewhere around that um, 11, 12, 13 year old mark. Um, I grew up in Colorado and uh, in Colorado, you can't at that time, you couldn't hunt big game until you were 14. Um, so I started out with pheasants and rabbits, and, yeah. you know, the, the standard small game plate that, you know, most kids grow up uh, before they move on to big game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, somewhere around that 11, 12, 13 year uh, mark is when those guys started taking me out. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that uh, having those people definitely makes a big difference, man. And where you go in your hunting career, in, looking back, you could you know started from where you where you started to where you are now. It's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, no, it's crazy, and I, I think about it all the time. And and um, you know, one of those things that helps to keep you humble is just you know I grew up dirt poor, um, you know, with not a lot of opportunity, and and to the point where I'm at now, where I have. You know, I'm, I'm, I turn down hunts, you know, as crazy as that sounds. Um, there's not enough time, mm-hmm. um, you know, to do everything that I want to do. It's just, it's amazing to come from where I did uh, to what I have now and, and those opportunities now. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you've definitely earned them. Uh, there's no doubt. So we know you're the senior director for all those programs and stuff, but talk a little about, about that role. And then we're going to see each other this weekend. Um, by the time this airs, the mountain Academy will have already happened. But, um, so talk about your role with Kuyu and then talk about the mountain Academy and what it's all about and why people should come. Yeah. So the basic gist of my job is, um, as you already said, I'm the senior director for the guide and outfitter program and, uh, underneath the guide and outfitter program runs or, or falls, uh, the military, and first responders program. And what we are is basically a liaison between that group of people, that group of customer base and the company. So anything that has to do with Kuyu and those roles, um, we're kind of that liaison um, with the guides and outfitters, with the military, with the first responders. So anything that they need um, in regards to purchasing products, uh, discount programs, um, banquets, uh, ceremonies, um, product development, um, you know, anything like that, that, that's kind of the, the small version of the role of what we do day to day interacting with those two groups, those organizations. And then, um, probably, you know, one of my biggest passions within the company and underneath the, the military and law enforcement side is getting to work with our nonprofit groups. And we've partnered with nine different nonprofit groups and all of those can be found on the two website. And with those nonprofit groups, um, we're able to give back to our military and law enforcement community through um, raffles, donations, uh, limited edition T-shirt and hat sales, um, sponsor hunts for veterans and Gold Star families. And, you know, truly just super rewarding to be able to give back to those two communities that give so much for us. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's a great program. Like I said, you you really run with that stuff and kind of took it to the next level and that's cool that you that you do that and like when you get the emails and you see the shirts and all those things that go back to the vets that's awesome because you being a vet i yeah. mean you know yeah and it, i'm super lucky super blessed um for for lack of a better term with uh the leadership at Kuyu and um the the role that they've given me and and kind of given me free reign you know to run with those programs and grow them and build them um, and, and put as much into them. So super, super thankful for that support that I get from the senior leadership at Kuyu. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're just as, just as big a part of it too. 
for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And then, uh, like you talked about with Mountain Academy, we got uh, on May 20th, the Mountain Academy event is coming up. And uh, that's nothing more than a big uh, customer appreciation day where we want to thank and give back to our customers. Um, we hadn't run it the last few years because of COVID and, and that shutting down things like it did for you know pretty much the entire world. But we're back. Um, it's going to be bigger than ever. We've got uh, four guest speakers that are coming in. Um, we've got a ton of uh, industry partners that are, are going to be there to be vendors. Um, lots and lots and lots of great prizes and, and that are going to be raffled off. Um, free food, uh, product giveaways. It's just it's going to be a great big you know one day event where we're flying in the who's who um, of the industry to be a part of this. Yeah, and that's kind of it's kind of grown from like the garage sale. That's what kind of started it, right? Like basically yeah yeah it's just um expanded over the years and grown um and gotten bigger and bigger and this one will be by far the biggest uh that we've done we're, we're super excited about it there's been a lot of uh, moving parts and a lot of people involved and in, in working hard um and and the foundation of the entire event is to thank our customers and give back to our customers yeah that's awesome man that you guys do that and i'm sure that there will be a lot of people there. Like I remember going to the very first garage sale and the yeah. line was like down the block. Like, and then we, uh, it was the first one, right? So all the gear were just like, was gone in like 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's cool that it's evolved. And I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that this is the first one since all the COVID stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We hadn't done it. Um, I know that we haven't done it the last two years mm -hmm. uh, for sure with all the COVID stuff. So, yeah. yeah, looking forward to it. Super excited. Obviously, uh, you know, you're going to be there and a ton of our buddies that we see on the show circuits and, and friends across the nation. So mm -hmm. uh, super excited about that event. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I know Andy's going to flip flop. What's he doing? Sheep legs? Uh, I, I think so. That's what I heard. Yeah. So, yeah. We're going to have a ton of ton of food. Um, like I just said lots of raffles. We've had a ton of um vendors step up and we've got rifles that are being donated um optics that are being donated um turkey know, hunt great stuff that's going to be raffling off yeah there's a, a turkey hunt um yeah it, it, it's going to be so much fun yeah that's cool man yeah we'll uh jason and i will be there and uh have a booth there and yeah thank you guys for like reaching out to us and letting us oh, come yeah, down there sure. obviously like yeah. we, you know us but i mean thanks for letting gseo be a part of that yeah, no brainer to, you know, have you guys involved in, you know, long time partnership with you guys. Mm -hmm. Obviously something that we want to continue to build and grow with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I'm looking forward to it. Spending a couple of days and some nice sunny weather will be nice and Yeah, it'll be warm for sure. Yep, and hopefully uh get to to meet everybody and just see everybody again because we haven't seen each other for a few months, so it'll it'll yep. be fun, man. Looking forward to it. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about an all new amazing opportunity to help you complete your Super 10 milestone. This is a must if you're trying to achieve a Super 10. The name of it is called My 10. For just $25 per year as a My 10 member, you'll have an opportunity to win your choice of species from your remaining Super 10 list. My 10 members will also be eligible to win other predetermined hunt drawings throughout the year. Stay tuned for those. Go to slamquest.org to see all the rules and regulations regarding participation and make sure you sign up today. Let's see, we're going to jump back into Alaska. And uh, okay. you you being, uh, you know, a resident of Alaska, 
um you obviously get a bunch of tags and whatever like and i i know how many sheep you kill but for like people that don't that don't know like when did you move to alaska and why did you move to alaska and like how many doll sheep have you taken there yeah so um 20 years ago i was an instructor at the sniper school at fort benning georgia and my time to leave was up um and i called my branch manager and said you know what do we got available where, where can i go next and there were two options and it was hawaii and alaska and obviously we know which one i picked uh-huh. um got up here um planned on doing you know a three four year tour and then that three to four year tour was up applied for another tour um and basically just fell in love with the place and i took every job within the military here that i could um to stay in place until ultimately that i retired so mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, sheep, sheep is my absolute passion. It's my favorite animal to hunt. Um, August 10th is the date that's on the calendar, no matter what year it is. Um, and that's the, the doll sheep opener. And that's the one that I look forward to the most. Um, and over the years, I've been lucky enough. Uh, I've taken nine doll sheep now and six of those with my bow. Man. Yeah. <clears throat> that's amazing, dude. Yeah, super lucky to have the opportunity to be able to hunt uh, sheep here over the counter um every year with the option and ability to put in for premium draw tags every year and that, that's the great thing especially you, you know yourself growing up in colorado in the west um and playing that draw game you know it's tough but here in alaska we've got so many opportunities that you don't need to draw a tag ever and you can hunt most all of the premium species up here year in and year out so how does that like me not being a resident i mean obviously i've heard the stories so what do they do they just send you guys tags or how does that work like what and what tags do you get yeah so um as a, a, a standard resident um you buy a resident hunting license um and then most all of your tags are free um you go online and and <clears throat> you fill out the paperwork to get your your harvest permits um and with the exception of a handful of them like uh mustox um if you draw and then some brown bear units um the rest of everything else is free oh that's cool so the only ones you really have to draw would be muskox for sure right yeah so well there are a couple of registration hunts within the state but those opportunities are few and far between um is that like the elk uh yeah yeah similar to that so we've got some registration elk hunts and and for those that aren't uh, uh familiar with a registration hunt uh, the state sets a quota, um, say 10 animals for a particular unit, a particular time frame. And once those 10 animals or those 10 units, as they call it, um, are taken, then that hunt shuts down. So mm. that, that hunt could be a day long or it could be six months long based off the season um, and how many animals are harvested. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of another uh, opportunity that we have here to hunt our, our registration hunts. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Cause I, I, I didn't really know that either. I mean, that's similar to what they tried to do in Wyoming with the whole grizzly thing, but never happened. But yeah. So yeah. T- talk about like which, which mountain ranges have you hunted sheep in and like talk about the difference in the terrain on those, on those ranges that you've seen. Yeah. So, uh, to date I've hunted the Chugach mountains, the Talkeetna mountains. Um, I've hunted the Brooks range, and I've hunted the Wrangles. Those are the four mountain ranges that I've hunted in. Um, and <clears throat> the brooks are probably, if you had to pick one to say that it's the easiest, it, you know, talking relative yeah. to mountain hunting, um, the brooks range is probably the easiest. They're um, not quite the steepness or the elevation as the other three mountain ranges that I've hunted. Um, 
the Wrangles, the Tautitnas, and the Chugach, um, they are that, that's some super tough hunting. Anybody that's familiar with those mountain ranges know that um, you you kill something in there and you've earned it. So there's lots of gl- glaciers, lots of you know river uh, crossings. It's 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 tough hunting in those units. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, so the Brooks would be more kind of like an NWT style. Like kind of those rolling yeah. kind of green. Yeah, a lot more rollers, a lot more big open basins. Um, you know, there's not, uh, there, there are a handful of glaciers up there, but nothing like we have down here in the south part of the state. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's an easier, uh, for, for holistically, you know, there's parts in there that are nasty. Yeah. Um, like any mountain range, but overall the Brooks Range are, in my opinion, a lot easier to uh, hunt terrain-wise. Yeah. That's cool that you to get through, move through, and that's cool. You get to oh, you know, pretty much choose where you want to go. Other than like Chugach, you have you got to draw Chugach, though, right? Yeah. So the um, the Chugach, the very first doll sheep that I killed um, right after I got up here was in an open unit, so it was a, a harvest hmm. tag, no draw needed, um, and it wasn't long after that that the unit went to draw. So every sheep hunt that's in the Chugach now, um, which is considered a trophy. Uh, area in the state is a draw tag hmm. and and they're all tough tough odds statistically to get right yeah the super super low odds huh yep yeah the tilt the talkitnas which border um the the chugach that are right next to the chugach basically there's just uh, a river that separates the two mountain ranges um equally nasty um talkitnas have draw and uh harvest over the counter tags in it um, the Wrangles have a couple of draw tags in it, I believe, but the majority of that is all over the counter harvest tags. And then, um, I believe all of the Brooks, um, that's open is all over the counter harvest tags. Is it? Well, that's cool. So what do you think, what's your opinion? Like, you know, I, I do some guiding for Dillinger. Um, yeah. what's your opinion on, you know, the non-resident shutdown of the sheep in there? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough one, um, you know, especially working um, in the position that I do as the guide and outfitter director and wanting to support um, both sides. And, you know, in the end, you know, something had to be done. I don't feel like that was the right step mm-hmm. uh, to take to just limit non-resident pressure because when you look at it holistically, those are, you know, those numbers are so low anyways. Yeah. You know, those are single-digit type uh, impact on it where there needs to be something bigger, a bigger plan, um, overall in regards to sheep conservation within the state, not just in the Alaska range, which has been hammered, mm-hmm. um, the last three to four years, but all of our, our mountain ranges that hold sheep up here, there needs to be a bigger, better plan. That's, um, less reactive in my opinion. Um, and before you know it, it's too late because the, the last four winters have really been hard on our sheep population yeah and it sounds like you know just like we were talking before like this is another winter that could possibly you know impact it even more right yeah there's absolutely no doubt so i know here in anchorage um i believe we hit the sixth largest snowfall uh on record the the snow came early um and it lasted late yeah. so we had a lot of big snow uh, storms in March, you know, when those sheep and other animal populations are maxed out after going through the rut and then going through the winter 
and you know they're surviving on literally nothing and to get hammered with those late big heavy wet snowfalls and mm-hmm. then the lower temps you know it, it's it's just tough on those animal populations mm-hmm. sheep in particular yeah and i mean and to go back to you know the shutting it down like i i get i get it like for me like personally i think if you're going to shut it down i think shut it down for everybody you know yeah like i said when you just um alienate the non-residents only there those those are such small numbers holistically that mm-hmm. and, and realistically you know you hate to say it and you hate to take away opportunity from anybody mm-hmm. but like you said you know it realistically it should be shut down across the board mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i you know i don't disagree with because i mean I, i've been up there the last few years and just watch the sheep population just go down i mean oh yeah you know we went from 12 yeah, I mean, 1200s to six in the last couple yeah, of years you know and, and and that's been one of the great things that i don't think has been highlighted um or, or you know the general public doesn't realize or understand is like these outfitters up here a lot of them like this is their their livelihood this is their bread and butter this is what they do for a living and they're truly passionate about what they do and truly passionate about conservation and a lot of these outfitters over the last three to four years took it upon themselves seeing the sheep numbers decline to reduce their own quota mm-hmm. you know to take money out of their pocket one not only for the sheep uh but two for their clients to provide them you know a, a hunt where they actually had an opportunity so absolutely you know, a lot of great outfitters out there that that reduce their own tag numbers reduce their own hunts um you know trying to to build back that sheep population and then provide their clients with, with the hunt that they were paying for. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you don't want to take somebody on a 10 day camping trip, you know? It, yeah, exactly. So if you don't have the sheep, then, you know, it's, it's good on some of the outfitters. I know that canceled people that, you know, were coming and was like, Hey, don't even waste your time. Cause we haven't even seen a legal ramp. Yeah. No, the, the, those outfitters that, that fly and scout those areas and live in them, you know, um, there were a lot of people that, you know, were heartbroken to get those phone calls. Um, but, you know, good on the outfitters to call those guys and say, look, man, you can come. But like you said, it's going to be a 10-day camping trip. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, well, that's interesting to get, you know, an Alaskan resident and you be my friend, like your honest opinion on what you think about that. Yep. So that's uh, that was one of the yeah, questions that I really wanted to ask around, you. So. What's that? It's tough all the way around I know. everybody. I know it is, man. It, it's, and it's, it's really tough, you know, financially for those guys. And it's tough for, you know, guys that were booked. I mean, obviously they got their money back, but still, you know, they've maybe they've been planning and dreaming for however many years that, Hey man, I'm going to Alaska. Like that was my dream to go doll sheep hunting. And then all of a sudden there's, you can't, you know, but you yeah, also, it's brutal. you also don't want to come up there. Like we talked about and, you know, just camp. Like if you're not seeing any rams, like you, you, everybody has an expectation of how the hunt is going to go in their mind. And then when they get there, it's totally different, you know? Yep. So, yeah, I don't know what, what can be done about, you know, the conservation efforts on that stuff. Um, but I agree, like some, something has to be, something big has to happen. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. So I don't know. We've talked before. Like, I, I think that like probably within the next five or 10 years, like doll sheep will be, you know, probably the hardest one to get. I mean, honestly. Yeah. And the, the prices on them for outfitted hunts have, you know, gone up drastically and, and with the reduction in available hunts, they're going to continue to go up. Yeah. They're going to climb fast. It's amazing. You know what they were five years ago to what the cost of a, 
a doll sheep hunt in Alaska or Canada is now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it ended up being like stone. And so now that we're talking about stone, I know, and I don't, I don't know if you want me to say this or not, but I mean, you have a stone sheep, you hunt book for this year, and that's going to be your grand slam sheep. And I'm so stuck, excited for you to be able to do that, man. So talk about, <laughs> talk about, uh, um, how, what you're doing to try to get prepared, um, for that hunt and go over kind of what, what gear and stuff you're going to be taking for anybody that's got a stone sheep hunt, you know, booked and is looking forward to their trip. Maybe you can give them a couple pointers on this. Yeah. So yeah, super, super excited. This is my slam Ram. Um, again, talking about where, you know, I came from growing up dirt poor, to where i'm at now with the opportunities like this is one of those bucket list top tier dream hunts that i never thought you know that i'd have the opportunity for always hoped and dreamed Mm -hmm. but you know realistically with what those cost and the availability Mm -hmm. to be able to hunt them i never thought that it was going to happen and um a, a good friend of mine josh harris um hunted with um the outfitter that i'm going with and helped get this set up for me and you know realistically if it wasn't for him um and the support that i get from kuyu that you know this hunt never would have happened um so august 1st i'm heading to spot cz river in northern bc uh to hunt stone sheep and hopefully uh finish my slam that's the last of the fourth north american sheep that i need um to complete that slam and so fingers crossed that uh you know i get the opportunity and with that um there's two things that i always try and tell people when they ask me you know what what should i do or what can I do to prepare for a sheep hunt or a mountain hunt or this long time dream hunt? And you, you got to control the things that you have the ability to control because you can't control populations and weather mm-hmm. and uh, flight delays and things like that. So you got to take in, into account what you can control. And for me, um, you know, that's your physical ability. So for me, you want to be in the best possible shape you can be in. Um, and you don't need to be a two-a-day gym rat or a professional athlete to be a mountain hunter, but the better shape you're in, the easier the hunt's going to be for you. You know, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to be miserable. Um, 100%. You know, because you've, you've put your lungs and your legs and, and gotten in shape and done what you need to do um, to be physically prepared for that. And, and for me, I work out five to six times uh, a week. Uh, I eat super healthy, very clean. Um, and I'm just dedicated and regimented, um, with that goal and mindset of being in the best shape I can when I get to that hunt. Mm-hmm. And then the second part that I tell everybody is, um, buy the best possible gear you can afford from your boots to your clothing, to your rifle or your bow, or your optics. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to own Swarovski and, and have a custom gun, um, again, to be able to, to do all of that. But you know, the better the stuff that you have the more, uh, you know, it opens up the possibility to be able to successfully use that equipment to your success. And um, again, you know, there have been hundreds and thousands of guys that have killed stone sheep wearing blue jeans and a flannel shirt. Mm -hmm. But um, it's all about, you know, being comfortable and being able to stick it out in that environment. And, And if you can make yourself lighter and warmer and faster and have the means to do that you know why wouldn't you so yeah you know if you can control your your uh physical ability and then control the gear that you take on that hunt then you know that's the two things that you should be concentrating on yeah that's good advice and i mean honestly you just spent all that money on that hunt like what's another couple grand in gear or optics or you know gear like that that's gonna for sure you know what i mean like 
trust me, like when you're on that mountain, you're gonna be like, man, I wish I would have bought that jacket. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure, because yeah, no, now you're freezing. Yeah, you get away with, with jeans and a flannel, but wouldn't you much rather have a set of, you know, um, ultralight high tech attack pants and a, a super down pro jacket, you know, when that wind's blowing or, you mm-hmm. know, having the best reindeer when it's pouring down. So, yeah. And so, man, you're hunting with an awesome outfitter. I've hunted with them before when they were Collingwoods and, uh, they're great and they have great areas. And I think those are, I mean, you use horses a lot on that, right? They do. Yeah. This will be a horseback hunt, um, with, uh, possible spike outs overnight. Um, so I'll, uh, I'm going to drive to BC and then we'll fly into camp. And then from camp, it's a two day horseback ride, um, into the hunting area. So looking forward to that. Um, I had three buddies. Um, I mentioned one earlier, Josh Harris, Mm -hmm. uh, that hunted with them last year and then two other buddies, um, that were also there and, and all three killed good Rams, big Rams, Mm -hmm. um, dark Rams. And yeah. The, I believe the camp went 11 for 12 last year and that uh, the only person that didn't kill uh, decided that stone sheep hunting wasn't for him and went home on day two. So mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, it's a, a good area, uh, dark Rams, big Rams. My buddy Matt DeFrank last year killed a 14 year old Wow. Uh, that taped out at 41 inches and Dang. Scored, uh, 171 B and C. So they, they've got good genetics there as well. And that guy's got a rabbit's foot up his butt, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it couldn't happen to a better guy like Matt DeFrank. Yeah, he's a good um, you dude. Know, very good friend of mine. Can't say enough good things about him. But yeah, the last three four years, um, that guy's been on an absolute terror. <laughs> yeah, we'll maybe we'll talk about something else he killed later on here in the podcast. Um, man, that's so cool. And I, I know you've been looking forward to. Like we talk all the time. You're like, man, I got to be in for every stone sheep raffle there is. And and now you got your own hunt booked. And what an awesome awesome feeling that's got to be man yeah and, that, and that's where i you know i had always thought that if i did get a, a stone sheep hunt and it was going to be picking up a raffle tag somewhere mm-hmm. you know hopefully getting lucky there and now um you know it's still like waking up every morning to christmas so i'm i'm 78 days out now mm-hmm. um in case you didn't know i was keeping track but yeah <laughs> it's just you know big big smile on my face waking up every day thinking you know that i'm one day closer to uh, didn't uh, have my bucket list hunt of of stone sheep yeah well i'm looking forward to to seeing how it goes man and knowing you you're gonna grind as hard as possible to make that happen and you're i mean you couldn't be in a better area so i i got a feeling yeah you're gonna, super stoked about the opportunity yeah so you're gonna it's as good as i can ask for or hope for for sure and the rams like you say are they're really dark rams or nice rams yeah. like i mean that's all you can ask for these days especially for stone sheep yep yeah, our, our, our buddy Eric Slukeberger at uh, Whitaker Brothers Hunting, he killed a beautiful dark ram that's on the cover of their catalog this year. So just super excited about that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great camps, great people, great pilots. Like everything they do is, is top notch for sure. Yeah, absolutely dialed in for sure. Well, cool, man. I'm going to look forward to seeing those picks. But so that's uh that's gonna complete your hopefully complete your grand slam like tell us a little bit about like so obviously we know you about your doll sheep but tell us like how long it took for you to get to this point like you killed your rocky and your desert so talk about a little bit about those hunts and you know how how they went yeah so this is 20 years in the making for me um i killed my first doll sheep in alaska um and you know exited the the one club there mm-hmm. uh, or less than one club there um and and again it was never thought that i would be in this position to this point um to to 
have the possibility to finish my sheep slam. And um, after that, next up for me was uh, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep in Colorado. And I was lucky enough to draw a tag um, with just 10 preference points, which is, you know, pretty unheard of. There were guys in the pool with me that had 20 plus points. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky and drew it as 44 archery tag in uh, Basalt, Colorado. Um, super tough unit to hunt, uh, lots of timber, low density, but super good genetics. And, uh, I, I killed, uh, 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 an eight year old 173 Ram on opening day with my bow there in that unit. Um, did you know a lot about that unit or no? I'm sorry. Did you know a lot about that unit before you went in? No, actually, uh, (laughs) honestly, I didn't know anything about the unit. Um, I drew a two-gatch doll sheep tag that same year. Oh, wow. And those draw results come out in February, and I believe we got to have draws in in Colorado in April. April. And it was literally the only bighorn sheep hunt that didn't overlap uh, the doll sheep hunt. So the first time I had ever put in for that unit, didn't know anything about it. You know, literally put in thinking that I was just going to get another preference point. Uh-huh. And, you know, to my surprise, I drew the tag. So <laughs> I'm going Rocky hunting. I, I had two premium uh, mountain sheep tags in my pocket. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember when you but, when you killed that ram. Yep. Yeah, and that, that was one of those ones that, you know, I knew, again, that was going to be a one-and-done, one-time opportunity um, to, to kill my ram and went all in on it. Um, called everybody I knew to see you know who was available to be there on that hunt to help uh set up glassing teams i took a month's vacation from work we flew in a week early to scout the unit wow Uh, my buddy matt defrank that we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. uh drove over to that unit when the state was doing their sheep count um met a guy that lived in the unit that did some scouting for me like went all in and um and and got lucky and was in the right place at the right time and, and killed a great ram uh that opening morning did you sneak? Did you have to sneak in on him, or what? Did he just? How did you? How'd you kill him? Yeah, so we spent, like I said, a week in the unit um, scouting, and in that week, we we came up with six U's. That's literally all we could find. And for people that don't know about the S forty four unit, um, it's a small unit. Uh, it's very narrow, and it's divided by a big ridge line. And a lot of the time, those sheep just don't cross the ridge, and they stay outside the unit. Um, and that's what we were afraid of because we couldn't find them. And so opening the day before opening morning, we went into the area that uh, we wanted to concentrate on that we had gotten the most intel about. And about 10 o'clock that morning, I picked up um, a group of four rams bedded in the back of the drainage um, in a little tiny cut in the timber. And I put a stock on them. I got to within 50 yards and the wind switched and blew them out. And uh, luckily, I was able to pick them back up. later that day and made probably the toughest stock um i've ever done in an avalanche shoot really got back on the rams and i killed my ram at uh 21 yards shooting straight downhill and uh he was the third biggest in the group so there was a group of four rams there were two absolute tanks that we believe were plus 180 wow the ram i killed it was 173 and then uh, a half curl ram and uh, to be honest with you, he was the only ram that I could see at the time, and I did not hesitate yeah. uh, to take the shot when I got it. Like, an absolute dream ram. I didn't need to kill a 180 on that hunt to, to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I have zero regrets shooting the ram that I did. Um, and for me, it's probably still the highlight, number one animal um, of, of everything that I've been lucky enough to hunt and take. 
you know, my home state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best friend was there. My brother was there. And in the end, I think that we had 14 different guys that had rotated into camp uh, between scouting and the hunting. And that just tells you how special a bighorn sheep tag is. Absolutely. That many people show up. I had, you know, people drive in from uh, Utah. I had buddies fly in from Alaska. Uh, you know, we had that entire mountain covered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you draw, I mean, it's almost a once in a lifetime for some, most people I'll yeah. say, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, yep. um, yeah, everybody wants to chip in. It's like, I want to help. I mean, cause I mean, those tags are so rare. It's, yes. you know, it's your, you know, it's your buddy's sheep hunt as well as your sheep hunt. You're just the one that's pulling the trigger. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. And, and like, I was absolutely blown away. Um, you know, I, I know that I have great friends and that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're stand-up top-notch guys, but like absolutely blown away with the generosity of my friends that were on that hunt with their time, their energy, their money, you know, yeah. that, that what they, they put into it just like it was their own tag. For sure. Uh, that makes it special. And I can see why, I can see why it's so special for you, man. Cause, cause of that, yeah. you know what I mean? So. so, and then, uh, from there again, um, n- never thought I was going to be anything more than a half slammer. Um, again, putting in for raffles. Um, and after probably about a year and a half at Kuyu, um, I had, uh, a cancellation hunt fall in my lap for desert sheep in Mexico. Um, and you know, a lot of money, more money than I ever thought I'd ever spend on anything that wasn't a vehicle or a house. But, um, for, for what I paid for it, like, you know, it was a no brainer to be able to do it. I had those, the, that money set aside and saved for that type of opportunity. And, um, it fell on my lap. I was able to go down to Sonora, Mexico, um, and kill a nice desert sheep. And that put me where I'm at today as a three quarter slammer waiting to do my stone sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when you, when you went down there too, and that was a, was that a one day deal or did you get him? Did it take you a no, little bit? No. Um, so I ended up killing my ram, I think on day five or six, we saw sheep, uh, every single day. Um, and we were trying to film the hunt. And as you know, anytime you add a cameraman into the mix, um, even the best of them, it's just harder because it's one more guy there. Um, you're trying to get it on film. Mm-hmm. And um, we had an opportunity to add two much bigger rams that we just couldn't close the deal on. Um, and I ended up shooting the ram that I did, which I was super happy with on day five or six of the hunt. Yeah, heck yeah. Just that much closer, man, for sure. Yep. So that's all That's all good stuff, man. I love hearing like everybody's individual journeys to how, you know, whether they're a Grand Slammer or they're about to achieve it. Achieve it. Like, yep. I like how all those stories are cool to me. So we hear a yeah, lot of them. Yeah, and, and like I said, I've, I've said a bunch over the, the course of the podcast here. It's just like never thought that I would be here and just truly grateful for all of the opportunities I had to, to get to this point mm-hmm. and have that opportunity. Yeah. Good things come to those who wait, though, my brother. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I fully believe that. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder here. To get signed up for our memberships, whether you're signing up as a new member or just renewing, it is vital in helping our conservation efforts for all species. We have a couple different options for you to choose from. The first is our most popular. It's $75 per year, which you get four issues of the Slam Quest magazine, which in my opinion is the best hunting mag out there. It also comes with many other benefits that you can see on our website at slamquest.org. The second option is our eMag, which is $25 per year, and you get all the same benefits with the exception of voting rights and no print magazine will be sent to you. So if you're a digital person, this one was made for you. You can learn more about how to get signed up 
for these memberships as well as our international and lifetime memberships at slamquest.org. That's, I mean, 20 years, dude. I mean, that's, that's every year, like, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Yep. And, you know, we're going to put in raffles, put in draws and just, you yeah. know, goose eggs. Yep. And there's a couple other hunts we're going to talk about here um, that I know you were lifetime uh, goals for you too. So on the international side of things, man, you know, speaking of Mexico and that, that kind of stuff, like when did you first get into international hunting and, and where was your first international hunt? Yeah, my first international hunt um, was Africa, and that was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago now at this point, uh-huh. um, and uh, went on that trip and absolutely fell in love with Africa. Um, like anybody that's been to Africa, you know, before you leave, you're you're already trying to get back to that place. It's just, it's amazing. It's, it's game-rich, the culture, just everything about that place is amazing, and it just lit a fire under my butt to you know do more things and so putting all my eggs into my basket you know Uh no other hobbies no other interests like every spare dime that i have has gone into a a separate savings account planning that next big hunt um and i try and make a goal to do one big international hunt each year yeah so um you know get together with a couple of buddies make a game plan um pick a country uh pick a species and go mm-hmm. yeah that's cool man uh was it south africa it was yeah it was south africa and, and i've been back since and then have another trip on the books to go back again yeah this year right yeah cool yeah that's gonna be a, a cool one i can't wait to see the pictures from that one um so was that a hunt that you booked outright or was it an auction or you know what kind of what kind of pushed you to go to africa first did you have buddies that went there or what yeah, no, no. I mean, so yeah, I had lots of buddies that had been there, and it, it was always one of those things I wanted to do. But in the end, it came down to cost. It was one of the most cost-effective uh, hunts that you could do mm-hmm. um, internationally, and, and it, it still is today. Africa's one of those places like it hasn't gone up much price-wise from when I did it 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and realistically, for the price of a deer elk hunt out west, a do-it-yourself deer elk hunt you could go to Africa all in and shoot five or six different species. Yeah. Yep. And no, it's, it's one of those, it's one of the best bangs for the buck. A hundred percent. You're a hundred percent right with that. Um, yeah. For anybody that hasn't been over there, like you should, you should definitely look into it. If you, you know, if your budget's limited and you want to go and, and a lot of those places in South Africa, you know, they're three to five star. They had swimming pools. They do laundry for you. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, the food is great. They do your laundry. Mm-hmm. They, they, your room is cleaned every day when you come back to it. Like they truly take care of you. Um, and, and, you know, you can hunt, like there's a, a lot of negative, uh, you know, stereotypes about hunting in in africa south africa particularly but like you can literally hunt however you want to you can do spot and stock you can do baited you can hunt blinds hunt over water you know there's just a ton of different opportunities uh, with a ridiculous amount of species to hunt like for me i've never been a big stand hunter or big uh blind hunter i get bored easy Mm -hmm. and africa you can literally sit sun up to sundown uh, in a blind over water and never get bored because of the amount of species that come through and the different species that come through. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you do, yeah, you know, if you have a slow day in the blind, it's like, well, if you, if you want to get it, make it more exciting, just tell me, we'll go drive around. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get in the, the back of the truck and go safari style, mm-hmm. you know, go, go do spot and stock. Mm-hmm. 
which I think is a really, really fun method. So, um, on that note, like what, what advice could you give someone that, you know, that is wanting to go on their first international hunt? Um, you know, kind of, you know, give, give, give some of your advice on that for somebody. Yeah. The number one thing I would tell people is not to be afraid of international travel. Like you see so much negative stuff in the news, um, and on the internet, but every country that I've been to, um, and, and I've been to a pile of them, I've never not felt safe. Um, and I've never not been welcomed. I've never had a single incident. Um, and I've been all over the world to a, a ton of different places and it's just, don't be afraid to go. Um, and then don't think that it's out of reach, Yeah, you know, just, um, you know, our, our buddy, Brendan Burns at you, you mm-hmm. know, tells people all the time. It's like, you know, in five years, you knew that you had to have a heart transplant or a whatever and it, it cost you 50 grand in that five years are you going to save that 50 grand yeah yes. you know and and it's you know a little bit different uh perspective on the hunting side but if your dream is to kill a marco polo sheep in kyrgyzstan and it's you know x amount of dollars and you've got five years to do it you know then do it yeah you know th- there, there's lots of ways to hustle there's lots of things you need to do yeah make it uh, happen you know, to, to, to make that happen. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's really good advice. Um, yeah, just don't be scared. Like, uh, yeah. Talk to people that have been there, you know, guy, talk to as many people as you can. Yeah. And, and today too, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many great booking agencies out there, um, you know, hunting full Epic Outdoors, WTA, and that's what those guys specialize in. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been there. They've done that. They've worked with those outfitters. Um, and so if you're hesitant to do it on your own, um, don't hesitate to look at a booking company and, and reach out to those guys and, and get their perspective and, and have them answer those questions that are lingering. For sure. Yeah, they take a lot of the hassle, you know, out of... They do. Adam. They can help organize travel, yep. um, you know, getting there to and from, take out a lot of the the, the logistics that, you know, you, you're, you're worrying about yourself. Yeah. Some people, like, I get enjoyment out of now. I mean, obviously, there's some hunts I'll use an agent for because, you know, they know the area and they know the outfitter, but it's like it's fun. That's part of that preparation stuff for me is, like, fun figuring out the flights and figuring out, you know, how to do this, how to do that, and... It just, it makes you more of a seasoned international hunter, I think. For, for sure. You and I are wired the same way. Like I, I get into that planning and logistics side and, and having control of, of everything. And then, you know, just knowing that from start to finish, you thought of that, you put it together, you made it happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's none, not a hunt out there that you can't do on your own. Right. Yeah. You figure it out for sure. Especially, you know, attending shows is, is a great way to, if you want to internationally hunt or go look, look to your international, it's a great way to get face to face with the outfitter. And I mean, you know, as well as I do meeting someone in person, that first impression, you're like, Oh yeah, that guy seems legit. You know what I mean? And then you talk to people around the show. Have you hunted with this guy? Have you done this? You done that? You know, that's a, I think that's a great way to, to, um, you know, figure out where you want to go and how much you want to spend and who you want to go with more importantly, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and definitely, like you just, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, talk to the outfitters, you know, don't just pull the first one you find on your Google search mm-hmm. and, and book with them, you know, talk three or four or five different ones, get their client list, uh, talk to your buddies, find out who's been, um, you know, do that diligent research before you spend that kind of money and put that, that amount of time into it. Absolutely, man. That's good advice. 
So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your your Spain hunt, and I think this is this is maybe when I when I first started seeing your stuff on Instagram was when you were going to Spain. You and did you do the UK trip at the same time you did Spain, right? Or was that? I sure did. Yeah, that was um, that was my second trip to the UK. Was it? Um, but I did them in conjunction, um, and again, that just came down to the planning and logistics um, and the travel. Um, people, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how cheap it is to bounce um, within Europe from country to country. And so for us, it was, I've, I've got a really good friend, Henry uh, Skeffington, that runs the Real Big Five in the UK. Uh-huh. Um, and I had hunted with him before. And once I put the Spain trip together, just looking at the logistics to be able to, to go back over to his place and hunt while I was already there. Um, it was just super cost effective. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why I did those two trips together. Well, yeah, I mean, you're already over there. Like I, I totally agree with that. Like, I mean, I bounced around one time to three or four countries cause you're, you're there. Sometimes yeah. you can train to the other countries. It's, yep. you know, so yeah, we did the, the, the same thing when we went to New Zealand. Um, once we had planned our New Zealand trip, um, obviously Australia is right there and we looked in Australia and what it would cost to fly to Australia um, and, and hunt there and we ended up booking another week and adding australia onto the trip you know after flying 26 hours or whatever it is from uh alaska to get there mm-hmm. you know we're like when are we going to be able to do this again we let, let's combine them for sure yeah no brainer so talk about uh you you killed the ibex slam over there which is awesome man that's I did. super yeah. cool to do and so talk about that and like how many days that take you to do and you know the culture and just to get get into that hunt a little bit yeah, for those that don't know, there's uh, four different species of ibex um, in Spain, and, and like sheep, I'm an ibex nut. Like they're just one of the coolest animals on the planet, and every opportunity I get to hunt them, I do. So, um, again, looking at Spain as a one and done type of thing, mm-hmm. cost effective to get there, have the opportunity to hunt. Um, I did all four species while I was there, and uh, that was a little over. Uh, I think it was 14 days total is what I was in country for, and. We flew into, I believe it was Madrid first, um, and we hunted uh, Besete Ibex. And then from there, we jumped in a vehicle. We bounced um, to four different mountain ranges across uh, the entire country of Spain. All four different species live in four different mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. And over the course of that two weeks, uh, basically three hunt days per species um, is kind of what it was, plus the travel um, and in the end, uh, got lucky and, and, and was able to take all four in that one trip. Mm-hmm. Which one was your favorite? Um, Besete or Gritos by far. Yeah. The country that they lived in and then um, just that darker hide and the horn configuration on them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they're bigger bodied too compared to the Rondas and the, the Sierras down there. But yeah, Besete and, and Gritos were, were by far. So terrain-wise, I think the Gritos was the coolest. Um, big rolling rocks, um, just super cool country. It was really, really pretty. Yeah, lots of Ibex too, huh? Yeah. And then for anybody that's never been to Spain, like that place is absolutely amazing. The food, the culture, the people, like it, it's just, it's a whole different world and, and one of those places that everybody should experience, uh, whether you're going there to hunt or not. Yeah, and it's a relatively small country. You can literally drive across it in six, seven hours, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, like I said, we, we flew into, I believe it was is, was Madrid, um, and then from there we jumped in a, a van and we drove uh, 
across the entire country to those four different mountain ranges to hunt. Yeah. Staying in nice hotels, eating all the nice food. Their food is ridiculous. Yeah. Like those people know how to cook and know how to eat over there. Yeah. The only thing is they eat so late. <laughs> they, they do know. That's one thing to get used to. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's not uncommon for them to eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. yeah you're like, what the heck? Now we're eating a full blown five course meal at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah. 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 And they've, they've got no shortage of courses. Like those people can eat. The, the food just keeps coming. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's good stuff, man. And they're doing that all for at once. That's, that's awesome, man. Like, that that's a dream for a lot of people and a good way for a lot of people just to go over and get it done you got any ambition to go get the other three that are there that two chamois and the goat on the island yeah no i mean I, i'm one of those guys that wants to hunt everything everywhere mm-hmm. and in the end it just comes down to dollars and time mm-hmm. so but yeah no it, it's yeah but people ask me you, you want to hunt that i'm like yes you want to hunt that yes but uh the the, the bucket list is huge and oh, yeah. just other animals that take priority over them yeah, for sure. So, and then from there you went to the UK. So talk about that. That's a, that's a really unique hunt. I mean, I've hunted over there too, but t- tell us about what you, what you did over there and, and what you thought about that hunt. Yeah. I think the UK is one of those, uh, underappreciated unknown places. Um, you, you, it, it doesn't get a lot of, uh, screen time. Like you, you don't ever hear anybody talking about hunting the UK and they've got a ton of different species over there to hunt and some that are super, super unique. Um, the two that, that jump out are the Chinese water deer and the munjack. Yep. And for anybody that doesn't know what those are, uh, they're worth your time to Google search. Uh, both those species have fangs. Yeah. Um, the Chinese water deer is the oldest living deer species on the planet. And I believe the munjack is the second. Um, and yeah, they're just, they look like critters from another world, mm-hmm. um, look like little aliens with their, their teeth, but, uh, just, it's a, a super cool opportunity to go and, and hunt, um, a bunch of different species, um, at a fraction of the cost that you'd hunt a lot of other places like be- bang for the buck. Um, the UK is one of the best out there, mm-hmm. uh, for what you get. Um, and again, you're staying in nice lodging, you're eating great meals. Um, and then you're hunting species that you can't can't get anywhere else in the world. Yeah, no, you got to go there for the water deer and and that muntjac. I mean, I think there. I don't know if there is. Oh, there's muntjac in Nepal. There's only other place I think where you can get muntjac. So, yeah, yeah, and the opportunity to hunt them in Nepal is super, super rare. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. As you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, and, and there's lots of other. You know, probably the first one that jumps out in in uh, the UK is red stag mm-hmm. and probably roe deer. Um, they've got fallow deer. I mean, there's lots of different opportunities. Um, they're known for, for their bird hunting with their pheasants, mm-hmm. uh, and driven shoots. And then, you know, just the culture again, like Spain, um, you know, there's a lot of neat architecture, a lot of castles, um, you know, London, uh, for a tourist spot is obviously a no brainer. It's, it's just a super cool place. And again, um, super safe and always welcomed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we when we did that, we actually we started in Ireland and then we took a ferry over to yeah. to England. So that was kind of a unique deal that people can look into too. Is you know taking that ferry ride. So yeah, yeah, just adds one more aspect to the travel mm-hmm. and to the experience in the country. Mm-hmm. For sure, and that's another place where you can bounce from Ireland to England to Scotland, and you know you can hunt. Say you want to hunt, you know, deer, roe deer, and scotland but then you want to do the muntjac in the uk and then you go to ireland for some of the different species there like 
all super easy to do, super accessible, like in a, in a few yeah, amount yeah, of days, yeah. right? One thing that I didn't touch on is that the, the, those are the type of hunts that anybody can do, um, no matter what your physical mm -hmm. uh, capabilities are. For sure. Yeah, a lot of those, like even, I don't know how you hunted yours, but like I know when I hunted Mutt Jack over there, it was like a lot of stand stuff and, yep. you know, you're yeah, just sitting there waiting. Yeah, we hunted stands on the edge, uh, on the edge of uh, agriculture fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super good marksmanship on those things because they are tiny, huh? <laughs> yeah, they are little bitty things, that's for sure. <laughs> Not much to them. No, you're like, there it is. And I mean, it's there for a second and then it's gone. So Yeah, they, they seem to never stop moving. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's, I like those unique hunts like that. And for, you know, people looking for something outside of the box, I think that's, those kind of places are super, super cool to go to. Yeah, for sure. And just like Africa, like I've been to the UK twice, you know, I, I went there the first time, um, and had an absolute blast and then had the opportunity to go back and take my brother. Um, and now I'm already planning a third trip back with Henry. Um, myself and Matt DeFrank, we're looking at taking our kids back over with us. Uh, just to share that hunt and that opportunity because it is so much fun. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, it's a great opportunity too. All right, man. So this one I've been saving kind of for last, you know, your Kurdish okay. stand hunt. Um, I know that was a chase and Marco Polo was a lifelong dream and for, for people sure. and for people like you can watch this film and I think it's on Kuyu's YouTube channel, right? Yeah, it sure is. Yep. So you can watch this film on, on Kuyu's YouTube channel, but I want Justin to talk about like what this hunt meant to him and, and just like get into the logistics of it and the planning of it. And you know, it, whether or not you were out horses and what you just like somebody that was looking to book a Marco Polo hunt in Kyrgyzstan, like tell them what they can expect to see. Yeah, for sure. So again, like I've, I've talked about a bunch on here, it's another one of those top tier bucket list dream hunts that I never thought was going to come true. Um, so originally I booked a mid-Asian Ibex hunt in Kyrgyzstan. And for anybody that's looking to do like a super cool international premier species hunt, um, mid-Asian Ibex is the best bang for the buck for that. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of opportunity in multiple countries um, they're very affordable when it comes to uh, a mountain species hunt like that for an international species. Um, so anyways, had that hunt coming up and um, it got uh, kicked back a year because of COVID um, due to travel restrictions. Um, and when the hunt was coming back around, uh, I had booked through my buddy Henry Skeffington and he called me up and said, hey, um, you know, they've got an extra Marco Polo permit. You know, nobody was traveling at that time. Everybody was still afraid to go. Mm -hmm. um, and we were set and ready to go. And another one of those opportunities that just fell in my lap at a price that was too good to pass. Um, and so I, I jumped on the opportunity to get that tag. Um, and, and we took off and there was four of us going on the hunt, me and three buddies. And for those that don't know or haven't researched it from the time that we left the U.S. to the time that we were in our spike camp it was three and a half days. Um, yeah. Included, uh, you know, all obviously all the air travel and then somewhere around a 10 to 12 hour uh, van ride that turned into a Jeep ride uh, to the first base camp. And then from there, we got on horseback and uh, we, we, we traveled eight hours on horseback through knee deep snow to get to our spike camp. And 
it was a lot of travel and a lot of logistics yeah um and and absolutely worn out but when we got there like it was it was kids at christmas morning um open up uh, up the the presents under the tree just chomping at the bit knowing that you were in the country that held marco polo uh-huh. and ibex and just if you jump on the the youtube and looked at the film like you can see the train that we're in it, it looks like it's straight out of a movie theater um you know we're off a postcard big towering peaks uh snow big river valley like it was just beautiful and yeah. i've never been other with the exception of africa but when you talk about mountain hunts like i've never been in a more target rich environment yep. um i use i'm used to sheep hunting here in alaska and in the, the lower 48 where you know you can go 10 days to find one legal ram or or, or one uh, good mountain goat and there it seemed like every drainage we rode up or glassed held sheep uh and ibex and held big species big numbers um it just it was an absolutely amazing place uh the the outfitters there the people that we hunted with like it's amazing how well those guys can glass like i think to myself as a really good glasser um top-notch optics and you look next to you and your, your guide's had a set of World War II uh, <laughs> 8x32 binoculars and he'll outglass you 100 to 1. And, and that's something for you to say, dude, like being from the military, like <laughs> like that's what you did for a living, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I spent a large majority of my time in the military as a, a scout sniper and, and, you know, we call it a trained observer and, you know, we live behind glass, uh-huh. um, you know, whether it's binos or spotting scope or, or your rifle scope. And those people, both times that I've been to Kurdistan, um, have absolutely blown me away because, uh, especially Ibex in the rocks, like they are not easy to find. And just at unreal distances in unreal conditions, those guys would pick them out like it was nothing. Yeah. Using just garbage old school optics. Yeah, that's crazy. And a lot of times the naked eye, like, oh, there they are. Like, what? And then they pull up their binoculars, like, yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big one, yeah, big so one. Many times <laughs> you're riding on horseback and they just stop and point you know three mountains or, or six ridges over and you know you pull your binos up and you struggle to find them they got to talk you onto it and, and they pick it up naked eye riding smoking a cigarette you know just <laughs> crazy yeah so i got a question for you how long did they tell you the car ride was um so i want to say that they said six to eight hours and <laughs> of course i know that i think going we were there uh 10 plus hours and then coming back um we had a really slow driver and most of the drive was at night and it took us 14 hours uh to leave camp to get to our hotel oh man that's like the classic asian move too it's like oh six hours six hours like <laughs> 12 hours later like what six hours yeah, yeah right. yep. Oh, that's cool, man. I know that was a trip of a lifetime for you. And I, I remember you telling me the story, but tell me, tell, tell everybody else about the, you know, um, the Ram when you, when it came down to, to, to killing the Ram and like what happened after that? Yeah. So, um, and, and again, it, it's all captured on video there. Mm-hmm. And the very first day of the hunt, um, we got on a herd of sheep and there were two absolute slammers in there. Um, and we put a stock on it, as it often does, the, the wind switched and blew the rams out. We were lucky enough to get back on them again. We made um, probably a two to 3,000 foot ascent. And for those that aren't familiar with Kurdistan, um, we're at 14, 15,000 feet. So just absolutely lung-busting uh, altitudes. Yeah. We got back on the rams, got set up. It was a long shot. 
um, but one that I've made a thousand times that I was super comfortable taking. Um, I got down, I was in a prone position, uh, ran the wind on my wind meter, you know, ran the dope on my gun. Like everything was dialed in. Like I was a hundred percent confident in making that shot. Um, and when I touched the trigger, I shot behind the, he was, it was the Ram was bedded and I shot behind him. Um, and it just read the wind wrong. The wind where we were was blowing one direction and across the drainage where he was, it was blowing another. And this was an absolute mega giant, uh, of a lifetime type Ram. And, you know, after all that dreaming and planning and logistics and getting there, um, I've never felt more defeated in my life when I missed that shot. Um, and we just felt, you know, you see a lot of times in videos and, and uh, films that they, they, they don't ever put the misses. Yeah. And we thought that that was just such a huge part of the story, um, you know, to, to have all that come together and then miss that opportunity. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and just completely defeated. But then get up the next morning and you realize you're in Kurdistan and you're sheep hunting. Mm-hmm. And it's the opportunity of a lifetime and you shake it off and you get back on the horse. Yeah. Um, and we were riding into a drainage to hopefully see if we could pick the ram back up where we had lost in the day before and we just got into the mouth of the drainage um and we had two rams in the bottom that were down uh low drinking water and we barreled off the horses got set up in the rocks um lays the ram got set up uh decided that it, it, it was a good ram and that something that i wanted to take and uh put the crosshairs on him dumped him and not more than a couple of seconds after I shot him, two absolute mega giant rams that were tucked in around the corner come running out with him. Oh, man. And, uh, you know, just semi-heartbreaking, but at the same time, I killed a great ram, um, you know, and, and had a great trip with, with my buddies and, and couldn't be more thankful for the trip. Yeah, I mean, heck yeah, like, you got to do something not a whole lot of people get to do, man. That, and that, at the end of the day, like, that's the way you got to look at it. Like, there, there isn't a lot of people that get to go over there and shoot a Marco Polo. No, for sure. And it, it was just like the Bighorn Ram, you know, mm-hmm. where I knew that there were two other Rams that were bigger, that were right there. And I was happy taking what I had the opportunity to take. And it was the same thing when I killed that Ram. You know, obviously, a thousand times over, I would want to shoot one of those two giants that were with him that you see on film come running out and stop. Yeah. And look at us. But in the end, um, just truly blessed and super stoked to be able to, to fly to Kurdistan, do that hunt with my friends, and then, you know, check off a bucket list species like a Marco Polo. Yeah, absolutely. And like we said, like, go check out the film and you'll, you'll see, you know, how it all, how it all goes down um, over there in Kurds. And, and I've never been had the opportunity to hunt Kurds. That's why, you know, most people that go polo hunting, they, they go to Tajik and, um, yeah. You know, that's why I wanted you to kind of tell your story about Kyrgyzstan and, you know, how um, how it is over there to to hunt those Marcos and those Ibex there. It's different. Yeah, and, and we, we've talked about it a few times here now, but, you know, people here, uh, a country with the stand on the end of it, and they immediately, you know, uh, t- talk about all the bad things that can happen and the fear and those questions that you always get you know better than anybody is like, you know, did you feel safe? Yeah. And, you know, for most people don't know, Kyrgyzstan is one of those countries we've had a military presence in for probably 30 or 40 years. We've got a giant Air Force base. Um, You know, they're an ally of ours. Yep. Super friendly country. Everybody we talked to everywhere we went there, um, you know, were super friendly and welcoming. And, you know, one of those countries that you should not be afraid of to, to travel to. For sure. And so, 
one of the questions I have for you is like, now that you've done it, like if you had to go back, would you change anything or would you do anything different on that hunt? Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, hindsight being 2020, um, I wouldn't feel the pressure of getting the hunt done. Um, and then getting the hunt done on film as well. I think that I would just take more time, uh, to enjoy the hunt and then just, you know, be a little bit more picky, um, knowing that I had that opportunity. Like I said, I, I hunt Alaska for sheep every year. And you go 10 days to hope to get, you know, one opportunity. Uh And so when you see that first good ram pop out um, and you're afraid of not having another opportunity, that's what I would take going back into that hunt um, is knowing that, you know, the opportunity is going to be there and just enjoy the experience and not put that pressure on you. Yeah. Did your, uh, yeah, that's, that's excellent advice for people. And do you, um, did your guide, did he speak any English? Yeah, no, so um, we, we did have uh, a game official from the country that uh, goes with you, um, and that's part of their conservation program with the Marco Polos. Um, and he spoke a little bit of English, um, but it's a lot of uh, hand signals and a lot of drawn yeah. in the dirt and drawn in the snow. Um, but, yeah, definitely a language barrier. In base camp, there were a couple of guys that spoke really good English that were able to give us the gist of what was going on before the hunt and then after the hunt. Uh, but once we were in the field, uh, the, the native guides there that live in that area, you know, that just a handful of English words. Yeah. And I think, shoot. yeah. And I think the, you know, for someone listening to this, you know, know what you're, know what you're looking at, like, know because of that language barrier, a lot of these guys are going to tell you to, to shoot, like you said, you know what I mean? So know what, know what you, what you want out of your Ram. Like if it looks good to you, who cares about the inches? Like no, but yeah. no, hundred percent what you're looking at because they're gonna try try to tell you to shoot because they, they you know they want you to shoot. But if you're if it's not something that you you know you want to pull the trigger on, then don't be afraid to not pull the trigger because you're gonna find more rams. There's gonna be more sheep. Like yeah. like, like no, you keep sure. saying, you know, it's not North America. It's there's more rams there than than there are here. For sure. No, I was absolutely blown away by the the population of, of sheep and ibex in that in that country. Mm-hmm. Like just a ridiculous amount of animals. Yeah. Yeah, that's I cool. Mean, the the herd of ibex that my buddy Van Frank killed his out of our, our last ibex on the trip. Um, there was every bit of two hundred and fifty ibex in there. Really? And uh, yeah, and wow. When we we had spotted these ibex every single day, and they were just in a position where we couldn't get to them. And then finally uh, they, they moved into a position where we could get on them. And when they came over the ridge line on us, uh, van was set up ready to shoot. And he's like, which one? Cause they're just, they're single file line, you know, coming over the ridge line uh-huh. and I'm looking at them and every one of them is giant. And uh, I'm w- looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm just like any of the first 11. And he's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, any of the first 11 are good. I was like, whatever is clear, shoot. That, that's how many, you know, there, there were. And it just, yeah. you know, g- great trophy size and, and uh, you know, very healthy herd numbers. And that was the same thing for sheep. Like every mountain up there, um, every hilltop, every ridge held sheep and held good rams. Yeah. Do you, um, do you remember what area? Were you in the Narn area or where were you? No, we um we were way down south. We were like on the map. We were less than ten miles from the Chinese border. Oh, I gotcha. Like if we'd have went over the mountain range that we were hunting, it would have dropped down into China. Mm. 
that's awesome yeah that's a what a great hunt dude and like you know just a totally different experience from tajikistan though that's why i wanted to get your kind of perspective on that whole thing for yeah, sure yeah i've never been to tajik um I, i've obviously talked to a lot of people that have like mm -hmm. myself and from mm -hmm. everything that i've heard it's a completely different experience so, yeah so, um yeah the the from the horseback ride in to the the animals the camp the country uh just a, a different experience there yeah for sure well man i'm not going to take up too much more of your time i got a few more questions um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your Mongolian hunt. Was that last year you did that? It was, yeah, last September. Uh, yeah. I, I did Mongolia. Yeah, so talk about that hunt. Like, you don't have to get too crazy about it, but tell us this, you know, a little bit about, you know, hunting both those ibex and, and how all that yeah. went. Yeah, again, so um, I had been to Mongolia several times um, with the military and just one of those countries that I always wanted to go back and hunt. And again, being an ibex nut, um, they've got two different species of ibex there. Um, the Gobi and the, the High Altai, and uh, for those that haven't seen those, they're they're beautiful ibex. They got the big knobby horns, mm -hmm. uh, deep curls. They live in two different parts of the country. There, you know, ones up in the mountains, and then ones in the lower desert region. Um, and again, it's one of those international hunts that's more affordable. Um, you know, especially when you're comparing ibex to sheep. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, put that on on the bucket list of stuff to do. Um, save the dollars, uh, talked to, did our due diligence with outfitters, um, picked our outfitter, picked our dates, uh, me and two buddies and, and we went after it and, and we flew over to Mongolia. And again, it's about three days of travel to and from. Um, and one of those things that we haven't talked about that you can, uh, um, talk to is that like, you gotta, you gotta take yourself and put yourself on Island time. Like that nobody is in a rush to do anything. Mm hmm like everything just happened slow but anyways um we got out there and again another phenomenal hunt um great accommodations we stayed in in yurts um we jeep hunted and backpack hunted and just no shortage of species um the three of us all killed absolute giant uh ibex uh my buddy matt defrank that we talked about again yep. um, so we didn't mention it but in kurdistan matt shot a 59 inch uh monster there it was the biggest that had ever been taken out of that camp. Um, and for anybody that knows hunting Kurdistan, 50 inches is, is a big Ibex over yeah. there. So for him to kill a 59 incher and then the very sheep, next year we are sheep. Yeah. yeah. And then the very next year we go to Mongolia to hunt Ibex and he kills a 51 inch Gobi, <laughs> uh, which he's not one of those record book guys, but if he does decide to enter it, um, it'll be number one or number two. So yeah, it's freaking giant just ridiculous uh and, and like i said couldn't happen to a better guy so yeah. uh but yeah mongolia is one of those places again super safe um the the culture the people the the history and then the species like it, it's a must do mongolia is amazing yeah of all the hunts you've done that's the one i'm most jealous about right now that i haven't yeah, done that like, <laughs> yeah it's one of those ones that i'd love to go back and do again yeah who you had with your car on that huh no, no, no. We hunted with Mongol Tour on oh, that okay. one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and the reason that we went with Mongol Tour, so we, we talked to all of the big ones over there, Capernet and and uh, Shikar and, and uh, Wild Turkey. Huh? And in the end, the reason that we chose, and, and all of those are great outfitters. They, they um, top shelf, but um, with us going with Mongol Tour, is that we were able to hunt both species out of the same camp. Oh, cool. Um, so, our camp was, was located in the High Altai area. And then it was about a two and a half hour Jeep ride uh, to get to the Gobi to hunt Gobi uh, Ibex. So 
that was the biggest reason that we went to that camp is we didn't have uh, to fly um, or move camps to hunt both species. Yeah, no, that's huge too. Big time. Well, we need to go da- down back there and do it together. Maybe do a, a stag or something over there. Those morals would be fun. Yeah, yeah, hunt merrill stag. Yeah. Um, uh, they've got white gazelle there. Yeah. So. And then, you know, whenever you're ready to get me that uh, Argali sheep for my birthday, I'll, I'll be ready to go. <laughs> for sure, man. But good things come to those who wait. <laughs> oh, I love it, dude. Like, um, that Mongolian experience is definitely one that I want to experience myself and definitely one that people should have on their list if they're got, uh, uh, Ibex lovers or sheep lovers. Look into that yeah, for sure. No, if you're, yeah, you're an Ibex mountain hunter. That one's a no-brainer. And again... When, when you compare apples to oranges and international hunts and sheep, like it's very affordable. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I got a couple more, I got a couple GSEO questions and then we'll finish okay. up with a couple more and then we'll, we'll shut her down here. So, um, how did you first hear about GSEO and you know, and what's ma- what makes GSEO different from the other hunting organizations that you guys are oh, you know, yeah, involved I'm in? I'm not sure how I heard about GSEO. I mean, they've been around forever. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, one of the, the industry staples and leaders, um, in conservation. So I'm not sure, um, you know, where, where I heard about them, but mm-hmm. what makes them different, you know, is that, um, you know, their, their focus is on and sheep and goats internationally. Um, and then, uh, the focus on all of the species in North America with, um, you know, all of the programs, awards programs that you guys have mm-hmm. that recognizes, uh, the accomplishments, um, within those species and within those groups like that that's where gsco sets itself apart as a conservation organization uh is their recognition of all those different accomplishments mm-hmm. yeah that's super important i think too and like even if you're not a records guy like just knowing like where you are on those lists is it's pretty cool just to look back and be like man look, yeah that's cool like i've done this i've done that like you know oh, for sure yeah yeah it's no no different than setting a goal to, to you know to kill your your super 10 or mm-hmm. get your capra or you know your ovis slam whatever it is it, it's it's a super cool program yeah so i do and now it's one of my questions is do you have a super 10 i do yeah so um of the north american 29 i'm sitting at 20 now Oof, that's um, close. if everything goes well um myself and brendan burns we drew uh roosevelt and elk tags on a fog neck in alaska this year so that'll be um another species for me and then if i kill my stone uh, if everything goes right this year, that'll put me at 22 of the 29. Mm-hmm. Man, that's awesome, dude. That's such a hard accomplishment, too. Yeah, yeah, especially when you start getting up. Uh, yeah, you, you need help and, yeah. and a lot of luck. Yep. So it's a big financial and time commitment, and then you, you've got to have luck with the draws. Yeah, for sure. You definitely got to have a lot of luck on your side. So that, yeah, I mean, one of those that I still need is bison. I've been here in Alaska. Um, I think we have five or six different bison herds in the state in that opportunity, but it, it's a draw tag and I'm over for 20 now. Oh man. It's one of those ones that I need help on. Well, and that may come down to being your last animal. Like, you know what I mean? Like yep. who knows? Yeah, like absolutely. you might, you, have, you might be 28 of 29 and the bison's the last one and you just end up having to go book it. Yep. You know? Yeah, I think honestly, realistically, with my financial um, ability, I think I might be able to get to 25 with some help. Mm-hmm. After that, it, it, it kind of gets untouchable for me. Yeah. Even Super 25, though, dude, that's a that's a great accomplishment. Like, Yeah. Again, just, something that, you know, I never thought I'd be anywhere close to. Yeah. So on that note, like, 
you got to be getting close to your capper slam too. The way you've been putting away the goats these last few years, you got you got how many you got on that? Yeah, I just need one more to finish my capper slam. Ooh, what's it gonna be? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure yet. So I mean, um, uh, I'm gonna get through this year with the stone sheep, and uh-huh. then uh, there's a, a few bucket list items out there. Um, I really, really, really want to hunt bezor, yeah. um, ibex, and turkey like that's. Uh, a, a dream hunt for me mm-hmm. um and then one of the tur species like I, i'm dying to hunt tur in azerbaijan mm-hmm. um, one of those ones that i've had a bunch of buddies do they say it's a super tough mountain hunt um and now that it's back open again uh that is definitely one that's at the top of the list for me so um but yeah basil ibex is what i hope to be next yeah well either one of those like to finish it off would be awesome yeah, yeah for sure yeah, so that answered you answered my next question. And the last question I have for you, man, is I think I already know the answer, but <laughs> what's the number one dream animal for you if you could hunt any of them? Oh, yeah, that's a no-brainer for me. Um, so stone sheep, uh, it, it's always been a toss-up uh, between stone sheep and then high altai argali. Mm-hmm. So now I've got the opportunity to hunt stone sheep, so high altai argali will sit at the top. Uh, the bucket list and probably will remain there unless I get a lot of luck. Uh, find me uh, a sugar mama or sugar daddy, whoever's willing to, to, to pony up those dollars. But it doesn't yeah, matter. Higher golly is, is the ultimate bucket list dream hunt for me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool, dude. And that's been 99% of everybody's answer. Yeah. Like, and it's just, a, it's a no brainer. Like if you've ever seen one, you know, for sure. So they are the pinnacle of sheep and sheep is the pinnacle species. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, cool, man. That's that's all interesting stuff, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. We've been planning this for a while, and and uh, anytime I get the chance to talk to you, man, I, I love to do it, and I, I look forward to seeing you this weekend. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, buddy. Um, so your friendship means a lot to me. Uh, our relationship at Kuyu and GSCO means a lot, yep. and uh, just appreciate the opportunity, man. And, yeah, looking forward to seeing you this weekend. Okay, buddy. We'll see you soon. Yep, have a good day, buddy. Thanks, man. Bye. Hopefully by now, you've heard of our Super Slam raffle. If you haven't, you're going to love this. For 2023 and beyond, we've stepped up our game, giving you the most bang for your buck ever on these hunts. For $100 a month or $1,200 a year, you'll get the opportunity to win some of the most desirable hunts in North America, including a Grand Slam of North American sheep. Unreal. Visit slamquest.org to get signed up and check out the list of hunts we are giving away in 2023 and beyond. Good luck, everyone.